so to help kind of set up the theme this morning, what I want to do is play a short video from a speech that Martin Luther King Jr. gave uh, just before the end of his life. It's a speech that's called, Where Do We Go From Here? Actually, it was a book that he wrote around that same time that he gave this around, it was August 15th of, uh, shoot, what year did he, did he die? 68. So this is August 15th of 67. So about almost a year to the day before he died. Uh, this is his second to last speech that he gave, so very significant. Um, his last speech was from the mountaintop the day before he was assassinated. This was the second to last of those speeches. And it was given at the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the 10th annual meeting of that conference that he helped kind of help form. Um, that was formed after Rosa Parks uh, and the, bu- the boys boycott, boy, bus boycott movement. So that movement and that group still exists today. So he's speaking at the 10th convention of that, that gathering, and like I said, about a year to the day before he was assassinated. Powerful speech. We played this on the Sunday before Martin Luther King Jr. Day in January. So if you were here that day, you, you probably saw part of this little video that Matt Gephardt, Jenny's husband, put together for us. Very powerful. I just wanted to play it real quick. Go ahead, Jerfy. Luther King. Oof. Let us be dissatisfied. I love that refrain. Um, and it's... it's uh, there's a lot about this, this uh, speech I love, but it's tempting whenever I hear, I don't know about you, whenever I hear Martin Luther King speak, um, he's so compelling and inspiring in a way that I never will be and none of us probably will be, that you just, I think when you listen to him, especially around these themes of justice that he speak, speaks to here in I think most of his talks, is we think we need to somehow, we want to jump out of our chairs, like you're sitting down, you want to jump out of your chair and do something, like do justice, Right? Um, bring justice into this world or, or get more involved in the work of social justice, right? You think, how can I be about that, right? And that's true at a level. I think that's good. But I think it fairly misses the point of what he's inviting us to be a part of. And here's what I mean by that. What I love about the speech in particular, there's, and there's a lot to love, is his uh, reference to Amos chapter 5, verse 24. So we're looking at the book of Amos this morning pretty broadly. But I don't know if you catch that verse. I mean, some of you know this. You've memorized that verse. It's the most, easily the most well-known verse from Amos, maybe the only verse you know from Amos. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, right? You've got that. It's on posters, and there's cats, and you're like, that's cool. That was a joke, but okay. So that verse, like I said, most well-known from Amos. It's important because I think of the, the subtle and yet, I think, significant implication of that image that Amos uses. So what the prophet is doing is he's drawing on an image, uh, a very well-known image in the ancient Near East of a wadi, W-A-D-I. A wadi is this desert stream or river that depicts the amount of justice that God desires to see. Let justice roll down like waters, like a wadi, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream, a wadi. Now, in the ancient Near East, in the desert, even today after like a sudden thunderstorm, you can imagine it's really hot, the land is dry, there's a thunderstorm. What's going to happen? That stream that's, that's coming down is like a flood that's just tumbling through the hillsides, creating these little kind of like um, cavern or like little uh, uh, canyons of, of sort of earth. And, and these streams are like torrents of water. Uh, so what Amos sees is a wadi, a river in the desert after a rain, a, a sort of torrent of God's justice. At one level, it's life-giving, for sure. 
but all, you know, brings water to people who don't have water. At another level, it's furious and out of control. I mean, you don't want to get into, if you can imagine in our context, down by Mount Rainier, after a huge storm, you're going to have these massive rivers and there's logs going down. You're not, you don't want to get in that river for a float or a swim. And that's the image that God offers as his desire for justice on earth. It's interesting, I think. It meant to evoke something that's coming at us, at the world, in many ways, uncontrollably. Um, it's not this sort of little, like, quaint little river. It's unexpected. You know, out of the sky, boom, you have this river of justice. And, and, and like I said, life-giving. It's meant to bring life. Justice rolling down. But here's the key. It's not a flow of justice. And this is where we go back to Martin Luther King. That's a product of a march or a program or an inspiring speech. Or for us at Bethany, a well-thought-out well tactics and actions. That we, those are all good. It's not an event. It's not an organization. Justice is not that. It's not a movement. As good as all those things have been and are at contributing to the work of justice, uh, it's, God's justice is this uncontrollable divine force that God intends to, to send at the world unabated, endless, mighty, steady from heaven to earth. That's the intention that God reveals here from Amos 5. As one of my heroes, John Perkins, once put it, he's the founder of a Christian, this is called the Christian Community Development Association down in Jackson, Mississippi, a group of churches, leaders, organizations that are committed to seeing uh, communities be holistically restored, specifically around issues like racial reconciliation and uh, uh, economic inequality and things like that. He says this about Amos. Amos didn't tell the people of God, uh, didn't, didn't tell the people that God wants justice to trickle through their society. It's not a trickle of justice. The New Living Translation uh, uses this phrase, that this is the, still Perkins, a mighty, flow, a mighty flood of justice. He uses that to describe what God wants to see. One thing, this is Perkins again, that we've learned is that the flood, uh, that once the floodwaters of justice start rushing through a place, there's no turning them back with human strength. Can't stop it. That's what he's saying. In other words, uh, the call to the work of justice coming to us from, from God in Amos is the call to the church into a place where God is, is already at work. <laughs> it's not the call to a place where God can't be found. We need to get things started, begin the work of justice where there's no justice. Rather, it's God inviting us into places where he's already at work, into the mighty flood of justice that he's been directing toward the world for generations and generations and generations. Enter into the river of justice. Let justice flow down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So here's the framing question I'd like to explore with you this morning. It's, it is summer after all. How can I get into that river, right? It's hot. <laughs> Join the work of God's justice just to push this metaphor. Get into the f- flow, right? Be a part of the work that God's bringing at the world, uh, coming toward the world, into bringing life and freedom and restoration. How can I participate or how can we participate in God's justice? And there's two ways I want to explore that with you, both out of Amos here. One is to just simply recognize the signs of injustice. Most of this book, I was just joking with our staff this morning, I thought Jeremiah was depressing, but then I read Amos. I was like, whoa. Most of this book, until you get to the very end, chapter 9, last 10 verses of chapter 9 are are frankly just hard, okay? So recognize the signs of injustice, that's number one. Number two is uh, then kind of respond to the scandal of justice. We need to understand that justice then and even now, if we truly know what it means, is scandalous, okay? So we're going to look at those two things. 
So let's start by recognizing the signs of injustice. And this is, we're not going to have time to really read this and unpack it, so I'm going to kind of do a, like a high-level view of this, uh, chapters 1 and 2 of Amos. And uh, these signs, if you read through those, they're outlined quite graphically. So sit down sometime. Read chapter 1, read chapter 2. Very graphic signs of, of injustice and how injustice looks in the world then and now. So God begins with Israel's neighbors, some of whom are kind of historic enemies, some who have been allies. It doesn't really matter. In each case, God names a specific example of evil or injustice, in which, and he calls it the fourth transgression or the, the fourth sin of that nation. And that's just God, God's way of painting a sort of portrait or giving us a framework of what injustice might look like. Let's go through a few of these. So in chapter 1, verse 3, God indicts the nation of Damascus, which is, or the city of Damascus, which is the capital of the nation of Syria. Uh, so, and it's for their brutality and warfare, okay? So the injustice here, actually literally in Amos 1, 3, is for the threshing, for threshing Gilead with iron threshing sledges. So this is perhaps just shorthand for their inhumane treatment of those who have been conquered in warfare. And this is on, his, on record in history that Assyria, Assyria uh, was very proud. This one Assyrian king I read about, Ashur Nasir Apil II. Like, how about that for a name? <laughs> Proudly described his army's practice of burning captives alive, cutting off their arms, their noses, their ears, and other extremities, gouging out their eyes, hanging their heads on trees, and even uh, burning their captives alive around the city. I mean, it's awful, isn't it? And that's what God says. Hey, number one, brutality and warfare. That's injustice. Number two, <laughs> uh, chapter one, verse six, God goes against Gaza, which is the representative of the Philistine empire. Philistines, these historic enemies of Israel, for the practice of human trafficking. So they were taking innocent captives, non-military captives, uh, women and children, as slaves after they won a war. Uh, no, number three, in chapter 1, verse 9, against the Phoenician capital of Tyre, God condemns their practice of slavery, but also their violation of international treaties. So if you made a treaty, they just violated those treaties. Economic, military, it doesn't matter. Uh, and then in verse 11, this is still in chapter 1, against Edom, who are the descendants of Jacob. This is Esau's brother, okay? This is what God says. It's for your continuous or perpetual escalation of conflict and war. You're just warmongers. You love fighting, which seems true of Esau if you read his story. And then verse 13, against the Ammonites who are the descendants of Lot, Abraham's cousin or a nephew. It's the butcher of pregnant women and the, and the murder of unborn children. So this is terrorism. So you, have, you just have this growing tapestry against Moab. It's the desecration of graves. They would just go around to the graves. It's, it's awful. So what is injustice? Read chapter 1. I mean, just look around. Look at the nations, says God. The signs are disturbing, deeply disturbing. And they're abundant, they're ambiguous, you don't really need to have a PhD to understand this. Uh, and in each case, while they're uniquely horrifying, here's what God is saying, the perpetrators of injustice have one common thing, that they disrespect the, the dignity of humanity. In every case, injustice is the practice of reducing, this is what I would define as injustice as I read this, the practice of reducing human beings to mere objects to be used for whatever you want. Uh, to be used instead of as free persons made in the image of God, okay? And yet, so that's your definition of an injustice right there, just reducing a human being to an object to be used. It's a power play. And, and yet, while that's real life, horrific, you can think today, uh, wow, things haven't changed that much as you look around today. There's also interesting, this, this very interesting and powerful rhetorical device that God's using here. 
to, to awaken his audience. Remember, his audience is actually Israel and specifically the, the king at the time. Awaken them to the, the reality of injustice right under their nose. And here's how this works. So as you read on, God doesn't stop with the other nations. Amos goes on to chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 4, thus says the Lord, because of outrage after outrage committed by Judah. This is the northern kingdom of Israel. And then chapter 2, verse 6, outrage after outrage committed by Israel, southern kingdom. You have the kingdom of Israel. Outrage after outrage, injustice after injustice by my own people. So what's this about? Uh, I, I heard someone actually describe it this way. If you were to plot all the other nations on a map that God just went through in chapter 1, all their injustices, you'd end up with this sort of circle. And Israel and Judah would be right in the middle, and it forms sort of like a little target. <laughs> and, and so Israel is like the bullseye. You can, almost, like, you can almost hear God say, hey, pretty bad, right? I mean, like all those people around you, oh, good thing you're not like them, right? So the example of the nations, I think, is just God's way of drawing his audience, Israel, Judah, by proxy us today, in, and then just hitting us where it hurts. Saying, hey, you think you're bad? You think they're bad? Look at your own lives. Look at yourselves. There's, yeah, there's grave injustice all around you, but there's also injustice lurking in your own camp. You've been complicit and committed injustice. Here's how that looked. In, in chapter 2, verse 4, they had committed idolatry. Well-known fact. They had rejected and were indifferent toward God's promises. They'd stopped even caring that God made a covenant with them back in Abraham's day. And so they're breaching their covenant responsibilities. They're basically saying, we don't need God. We're prosperous today. Our nation is flourishing. Eh, who cares about all these things God said to Moses? Let's just do our own thing here. And the outcome of that uh, is this widespread neglect of the poor in chapter 2, verse 6, growing income inequalities, perversion of of justice is in the system. They're, they're bri- judges are being bribed. Uh, legal, there's no adequate legal representation. And then in chapter 2, verse 8, their leaders have begun utilizing, taking part in this elaborate system of, of temple prostitution. There's sex for sale right next to their houses of worship. Wow. Uh, when you think about it, it hasn't changed that much from today. When you drive up and down Lake City and Aurora, right? Uh, God's saying, yeah, there's the nations are bad. They're bad. There's injustice all over the world. There's ISIS. There's corrupt political systems. There's leaders. There's sex trafficking. There's abject poverty. There's homelessness. There's hunger. But beware. Injustice isn't just those people over there, down the street. Uh, step outside your own door. He's trying to... We're woke here in Seattle, right? I mean, Seattle's so progressive. We're so, we're so about justice. And, and I think God would say, hey, look at your own city. Look at your own community. Look at your own household. Is, is, is injustice lurking in your own life in any way? Uh, and in one of my favorite verses from Amos, actually, in chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, this kind of frames out that famous verse we, I spoke to earlier. This is what the Lord says, Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph, the leader of Israel, and, and, have a def- and he's in his house. Let, seek the Lord and live, lest it break out in your house. And then it says, oh, you who turn, turn justice to wormwood. This is where C.S. Lewis gets that word for, you know, remember uh, the screw tape letters? Oh, you who turn justice to wormwood and cast righteousness down to the earth. So it's interesting, this linkage between righteousness and injustice, I think. You see it all over the Bible. Justice turned to wormwood, which is literally bitter fruit. 
Like you take justice, bite it, and it's like, like eating a lemon. You're like, ugh, that wasn't good. So if you go into the Old Testament, what you see again and again is this contrast between righteousness and, and, or the righteous and the wicked. There's a, there's a contrast. Or you could say righteousness and injustice. And that's really about this. The word righteous in the, in the English Old Testament, English version of the Old Testament, is this Hebrew word mishpat. It's all over the Bible. And do you know what it means? Do you know what mishpat means? It's the word for righteousness. Guess. Justice. Righteousness equals justice. It's the same word. So what is justice? What is a righteous person versus a wicked person or unjust person? Old Testament scholars are just going to tell you that a righteous person is a person of integrity, a person whose inward life lines up with their outward life, right? Uh, who's, who, who, for example, sees their resources. Take an example of you have resources, time, money, skills, talents, uh, God-given gifts. See those as belonging to the whole community. You see those as God says, hey, give those things away. Who sees their resources belong not to him or her alone, but to everyone around them. A righteous person, just person says, this, whatever it is, is a gift. And it's been given to me for the benefit of the people around me, not just myself. And therefore, I'm going to plow whatever that is. It's my money. It's my talents. It's my family, my resources, whatever I have. I'm going to plow it into the the city in which I live. I'm going to plow into the church in which I worship. I'm going to plow it into my, I'm going to plow my financial resources into the city. I'm going to I'm going to plow into the schools. I'm going to plow it into the lives of the poor and the vulnerable. I'm just going to keep plowing what I've been given in because that's what it means to have integrity, to be just. Whereas the unjust or wicked person would say, nah, nah, this is mine. I've earned it. I'm going to keep it. My free time, my money, my house, my business, my church. I mean, this is mine. And so what God is saying, to be quite blunt, look in your own household. That's a sign of injustice. It's not the entirety of injustice. Don't worry. I'm not saying you're all, we're all equal to all those bad things in chapter 1, but it's a sign of injustice. This is what makes Jesus' uh, interaction with the rich young ruler in, in Matthew chapter uh, 19 and Mark chapter 10 so instructive for us. You know, this guy comes, you know this story, he comes to Jesus, says, hey, what do I need to do to get to heaven? Uh, and Jesus, remember what he tells him? You know the commandments, do those. Shouldn't be that hard for you. You grew up, you grew up going to church. You know all the stories? Do those. Of course, remember how this guy responds to Jesus? And I think it's kind of a smug response. It's hard to read into it too much. He's like, I've done that all my life. I, think, I mean, it's like a little bit of a pat on the back. I've been a good person. Man, I've been going to church. I'm in a couple Bible studies, you know. Uh, you know, what more do I need to do, Jesus? <laughs> and remember what Jesus says to him in, Matthew, in, in Mark chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. He looks him hard in the eye. And actually with love, with, this is key, with love, he says to this young man, there's one thing left, one thing you've missed. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, all your wealth, will be heavenly wealth, come and follow me with nothing to your own name. And we, and of course this guy's face clouds over, he, he realizes he, he's been gripped by much and he goes away sad. And we read that and we go, oh yeah, we need to live a life of poverty, right? We have to give it all away, right? I think, what, I think what Jesus is saying is he's pointing at there are signs of injustice, gut-wrenching signs of injustice in, your, in the world around you. But beware, because they're also in your own heart. And, and here's what he's trying to say, I think, to this young man, uh, to us, that our hearts have the capacity, even the tendency toward injustice. Uh, 
Mark Laberton, who's uh, the president at Fuller Theological Seminary, he wrote a book uh, I've been kind of reading through this last year called Loving Your Neighbor, uh, The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor, Seeing Others Through the Eyes of Jesus. It's a really awesome, awesome book. He has this uh, little quote in here about injustice that I wanted to read to you. He said that human hearts form the seedbed from which injustice thrives. And here he says, we're not focusing on the hearts of the heinous perpetrator. So take Amos chapter 1. We're also not focusing on the brutalized victims who respond, you know, get, get even. He says, instead, we're focusing on the ordinary heart. All y'all have pretty ordinary hearts, right? Healthy, capable, but relatively disconnected hearts. And here's what Laberton says. Our hearts don't consciously will injustice, nor do they deliberately withhold compassion, nor is it that tales of injustice fail to grab or concern us, yet our hearts are also weak and confused. Our hearts are easily overwhelmed and self-protective. They're prone to be absorbed uh, mostly by the immediacy of our own lives. Our hearts have the capacity to seek justice, but are usually, I love this, usually not calibrated to do so. What's your heart calibrated on right now? You know, like a compass, (laughs) And and this is what Laberton says, in a world of such hearts, virulent injustice is given room. That's what this is about. We give room to this this injustice in chapter 1, room to thrive. Systemic injustice is given room. The absence of the rule of law, the suffering of innocence, room. Not because we do it, but because we're complicit, we're distracted, we're we're self-absorbed, is what Laberton says. I read that, I was like, whoa, (laughs) Uh, what's going on? And, and, and Laberton is saying that the root, the seedbed, the, the first sign of injustice in the world is a confused, overwhelmed, self-protective, self-absorbed heart. The heart, is, as a reformer Martin Luther said, that is incurvitus in se, turned in on itself. Uh, you've heard of like an ingrown toenail, right? Terrible image I just offered you. But uh, <laughs> that's like the image here, like a heart that's growing inward when wrapped up in its own anxieties and fears and worries, preoccupied. And that inwardness is never healthy. That's the image here. It's never healthy to be turned so inward that you forget that God has called us outward into the world. Uh, so here's the question. How do you, do you want to get into the river of God's justice? Like this justice will flow down like waters. Do you want to participate in what God's doing and bringing into this world? Uh, his healing, his restoration, the work of reconciliation. You look at that, you go, how do I, how do I participate in that? What God is saying through Amos is you first need to recognize the signs of injustice in your own life. Start there. You need to be able to respond to those with courage. Acknowledge that it's not just happening across the oceans. It's not just happening in other parts of the city. It's right, it's right here in your own life, in your own heart, that you need to start doing the hard work. What, so where's your heart right now? Think about your own heart. What's gripping your heart? What's preoccupying you? Uh, your deepest heart. Like if you were just, if you could read your journal to somebody right now, you know, I'll give you the mic. What, what, what's taking up the page right there? Uh, where's your heart focused? Another way of maybe framing this is, what are you passionate about right now? Like when someone asks you, what, what are you longing, what's energizing you? How do you respond? What excites you? I, I really find that a good litmus test for me has been my Instagram feed to answer that question. Uh, not all of you have Instagram, but maybe any social media outlet. Funny thing about those, they have these algorithms. I don't quite understand. I'm not a tech person, but I think the way they work 
is they kind of, they're built on this, they can reveal what you've been looking at. So what have you been been meditating on, so to speak? (laughs) So I was sitting down on the couch the other day with Elizabeth, and uh, she was reading a book, as she's prone to do, and I was scrolling through Instagram. Tells you a lot about me. And so she looked over my shoulder. She doesn't use Instagram, and she just said, hey, what do you, what's in your feed? And I could feel my cheeks just get a little bit warmer for a moment with a shade of embarrassment. Because you know what my feed is filled with? My Instagram feed, if I could just open my phone up and show you. Bikes, 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 bike shoes, bikes, cyclists, bike shots, you mean bikes. And that's not bad. I mean, I'm a cyclist. I love biking stuff. You have your own thing. But it just got me thinking, what is my heart calibrated on? What am I meditating on in those images? What am I taking in? What am I, what am I desiring? Maybe another way to evaluate this question of, of what has your heart right now is, as you're sitting here right now, I'm just yakking away, what are you really thinking about? Are you thinking about, or you're at the bus stop, or you're at dinner with your spouse, or you're watching a movie as we do with our kids on a Friday night, or you're lying in bed at, in bed at wake at night, 3 a.m., midnight, wishing you go to sleep. What has your attention? What's gripping your heart? Do you lie awake thinking about the house you hope to be able to buy and what you need to do to up your credit rating to get there? Or are you sitting here trying to concentrate on what I'm saying or those songs, love that Andrew wrote that, but really think about the deal you need to close tomorrow so that if you could just do that, you could turn the corner and your whole career, your life would forever be changed. Or, you know, you're there with your spouse, your kids. I've done this all the time. You're thinking about the next thing. Oh, I saw that on Instagram. Where did I see that? What? And how can I get that? You know, Amazon, or do I need to go to a store? You know, that toy, whatever it is. What has your attention right now? Is it preoccupying your life? Is it gripping your heart? It, and whatever it is, Laberton says it, it may not do this to you, but it has the power to do this to you, to form the seedbed of injustice, to, to distract you, make you indifferent, not, not wholly centered on injustice, but not wholly centered on God either. And that's what God calls us toward, is a life wholly centered on Him. That's the only kind of life that will, la- that will have the ability to sustain a lifelong commitment to justice, one that is wholly centered on God. Uh, that's, that doesn't swim upstream against the flow of justice, but that, that says, I get in the river. I want to join you, God. Uh, and so God would push us to have the courage to do that, to look at our hearts and say, where is it in my life? that God needs to do some work so I could join that work with him. So where's your heart right now? Be thinking about that, okay? Let's move to number two. So that's the, the signs of injustice. And now I want to invite us to respond to the scandal of justice. And this is chapter five, specifically that verse, let justice roll down like water. Uh, and Laberton in this book, he has some really valuable insights on injustice, so I'd invite you to read that. But he has a really helpful definition of justice. Here's his. Rightly ordered power that promotes human flourishing for all people. That's justice. Rightly ordered power, so there's a power thing there, that promotes human flourishing for all people. Okay? That's, that's his definition of justice. And I, I, I think it reveals something, this really interesting connection between power and justice. So there's a connection between righteousness and injustice, <laughs> or the twisting of righteousness and injustice, and there's also a connection between power and justice. So as I said, the, the Hebrew word for justice is this Hebrew word mishpat. Okay? And it's various forms. It's, it occurs over 400 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. So just that word is huge. And its most basic meaning for justice 
is to treat people fairly or equitably. Or as uh, Labberton says, to make things right. That's justice, to make things right or to want to make things right. So, for example, in Amos 5.15, this is what Amos hears from the Lord. Hate evil, love good, establish mishpat, justice, at the gate. Hate evil, love good, establish justice at the gate. So the context there is this, that the place of justice, the so-called like courthouse or department of justice in those days, was literally the city gate. You'd go into a city, and there would be a gate and a wall, and you could enter into the city and go to the worship like, gathering like this through that entry point. Go to the market through the entry point. Go home through the entry point. So the gate was the place where cities were protected, like the, going in and out of the city, and that's where these, these sort of hearings were held. The, these disputes between neighbors were heard. So, uh, you know, if you had a dispute with your neighbor, say your dog or your neighbor's dog, you, they just keep leaving little blue bags on your lawn, or a tree fell on your house and it was in your neighbor's yard, or your neighbor, as some of ours do, uh, stay up late all night. They're, they're college students, and Saturday nights in particular are really hard for us, and they play loud music. And I just want to go look over the fence and say, hey, we can do this two, one of two ways, one easy way, one hard way. Like, I can call the police, or I can come over the fence, but you need to turn it off. Uh, I haven't done it yet. So, but in Amos's day, you'd take that, whatever that is for you, to the city gate to be dealt with. Uh, and the elders of the city would hear your case, and they decide who is going to be fine and who's going to turn their music off and blah, blah, blah. So the, here's the problem in Amos' day. In Amos 5.12, the, the people hearing, the men usually hearing these legal cases, were taking bribes. And literally, here's what Amos 5.12 says, afflicting righteousness by turning aside the needy. They're afflicting, bending, breaking righteousness, justice, by turning aside the needy. In other words, there's no, there was no equal justice in those days. Whoever had the most to pay off the judge would get the hearing. There was corruption of justice, twisted righteousness, and specifically toward the needy, the poor, those without resources. Uh, and there's actually what scholars call the quartet of the vulnerable here. You'll see it throughout the prophets. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, several classes of people continually come up that lack this the power to have a fair hearing. You have widows, orphans, immigrants, and, and then you have the economically poor. Widows, orphans, immigrants, economically poor. This is the quartet of the vulnerable. And the prophets are always talking about them. And one author writes this, that, that mishpat, or the justness of a society, is evaluated on how the society would treat those four groups. Any neglect to the members of this quartet was not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, in the Bible, it's a violation of justice, a violation of justice. And that's what it means, according to this author, to do justice, to care for, be equitable toward these types of people. And what's interesting as you go down this path, as you read the Old Testament, is how often God is introduced as the defender of this quartet, the defender of vulnerable groups. So, for example, Deuteronomy 10, the Lord your God defends the cause, the mishpat, the justice, of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the immigrant. He, he gives them their food and their clothing. In Psalm 146 that we read, did you hear that? It says that God defends the wrong. He feeds the hungry. He frees prisoners. He lifts up the fallen. He protects refugees, takes the side of, of orphans and widows. This is our God. 
And this theme is all over the Bible, Old Testament and New. And in fact, it's so frequent that it's really hard for us to grasp how revolutionary this idea was in the ancient world. Utterly revolutionary. This idea of the scandal of justice came from a scholar uh, named, a Sri Lankan scholar named Vinroth Ramachandra. And he says that, he writes that, that virtually all ancient cultures of the world in which Amos is writing, they, they said that the power of the gods was channeled through and identified with the elites of society. So kings, priests, wealthy, military captains were the ones who channeled power. The gods channeled power through them, not the outcasts. And so to oppose any leader of society was to oppose the god. That's how this would work, and you would get punished because of that. So here in the Bible, this, is, this rival, rival vision is cast, <laughs> a rival vision for justice, and one that was scandalous one that did not place high-ranking males in the top of the pyramid, but the orphan, the widow, the refugee, (laughs) the poor. And it's with these groups that God stands and says, if you identify with them, not oppose them, you'll be identified with me. His power is exercised, this is Ramachandra, is exercised in history for their empowerment. God's power is exercised for their empowerment. So much so that from ancient times, the God of the Bible would stand against all other religions on the side of the power, on the side of the weak, on the side of the poor. So that begs a question for us sitting here today. Most of us not in any of those categories, some though. If God's character includes a passion for justice that, that leads him to have this tender love and an intimate involvement with the most vulnerable of the world, and I'm not, I don't, I'm not vulnerable, I've got a house, all Maslow's hierarchy needs are being met in my life, right? What should I do? Like, what, what's my response to this revelation? How should the shape of my life and then our life together be? What, what, what do I do, Jack? Thanks for roasting me here. I mean, I, I care, but what do I do? Well, the answer, actually right here in Amos, as well as throughout the rest of the Bible, God injects his concern for justice in the very heart of Israel's worship. Let justice roll down like water. Righteous like an ever-flowing stream. He's describing a worship service as you read chapter 5. He, he injects it into that, into the moral fabric of their community, creates a, a, a culture where justice was the norm, justice for the, the poor and the vulnerable, so they could experience intimacy with God. That's the purpose of it. Worship, what we're doing this morning, even this part, is about intimacy, deeper intimacy with God. Some of you get activated by song. Some of you get activated, I heard from somebody else, by teaching. God is trying to activate your heart. And, and He's doing that. He's doing that through justice so you could be more uh, intimate with Him. Uh, did you know that? That's, that's the essence of justice? Like, like it's, it's, not, it's not ultimately about ethics, though that's important. It's not really about having just a just and moral society, though I think that's important. It's not even really, and this is a missional guy here, but it's not even really about mission, ultimately. It's about, it's about intimacy with God. Uh, Jim Martin, who's the vice president for International Justice Mission, he says that God is beckoning us to experience his profound love for us in the vulnerable of the world. This, this call to fight injustice, it's a call to intimacy with himself. And so he says that the work of justice is as much about discipleship as it is about mission or ethics, or anything else. 
Justice is about intimacy, which is a hard notion for me to grasp sometimes. But really, it's the thrust of Jesus' life. You come to the end of his teaching, Matthew 25, there's this really famous place where Jesus divides these two groups up. Remember this, the sheep and the goats? And this is like the end of the time. This is like a revelation. You have two groups of people sitting beside the throne of God, and Jesus has separated them to left and the right. And that's not a political statement at all, but the just and the unjust. He separates them, and, and, you, and he says to the, the ones on the right, you know, welcome, you're the sheep. The ones on the left, unjust, you're out. And do you remember why? Matthew 25, 35, I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, I was a, I was a refugee, you welcomed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came to me. And of course, the opposite is true of those on the left. They didn't do any of those, the unjust. And then both groups asked Jesus, but when? When did we see you hungry and feed you? When were you thirsty, Jesus? When, when did we see you as a, a refugee? When were you naked? <laughs> when were you sick? When were you, when were you in prison? And Jesus said, truly, he said, truly, I say to you, when you did it to one of those, you actually did it to me. And see, we hear that. We think Jesus is giving like some motivational speech, like, those on the right, great job, you, the rest of you, keep doing it, you know? Or that he's kind of heaping on guilt and shame, right? You haven't been doing it, haven't been doing justice, shame on you, right? I would just invite us to remember that this is Jesus speaking. And first and foremost, Jesus never lays on guilt and shame with anyone. The most irreligious, most religious, guilt and shame are not Jesus' MO. So if you've been guilted and shamed in the church, you just hear Jesus is all about grace and truth, but he's not about guilt and shame. Also, he's not a motivational speaker. <laughs> he's not, a, a, as Jamie says, a shoulder. He doesn't come and say, hey, this is what you should be doing. This is what you shouldn't be doing, uh, you know, to get them to conform to his perfect life. Jesus doesn't do that. This is what Jesus does. His, his MO is very different. He's, he's constantly inviting those he's with into ever deeper intimacy with himself and the Father and the Spirit. That's what Jesus does all the time. He's calling us in. He's inviting us in. He's saying, you, I want to be with you. That's why I came. And I want you to have an experience of fellowship and friendship and companionship and healing and grace. And in order to experience those things, you need to be with me. That's the source. I'm the river. <laughs> Come away with me. Lay down your heavy burdens. Rest. Get into this river of justice and do so. Here's the key by being with the poor and being with the refugee and being with the orphan. That's, it's engaging in the work of justice, but it's really about being with Jesus. He's found in their, in their lives. It's like entering into a river. That's what he's saying. It's like floating down whatever river you can imagine. It's like just the scandal of justice is being with those who the world can't stand. And you discover, oh, wait, this is Jesus. In fact, uh, I read this quote by Mother Teresa that I'll end with. She's talking about why she started the Sisters of Charity. And she said this, I chose to do that because I see Jesus in those people in Calcutta. I said to myself, one day, this was hungry Jesus. And so I fed him. This was sick Jesus. And so I healed her. This was Jesus with leprosy and gangrene. And so I washed him. I tended to her. I serve because I love. And I love Jesus. That's why she did it. 
And so, do you love Jesus? That's my question for you today at the end of this talk. (laughs) Do you want to experience deep intimacy with Jesus? Well, then you're just invited to get into the river. That's all. Just get into the river. Trust him with the outcome. Let justice roll down. Uh, And there's so many ways to get in the river. So many ways. I'm going to invite you to be thinking about that. But at this moment, I want to invite one couple up. And this is not to put them on a pedestal at all. I asked them right before I came up if I could do this now. We were going to do this at the benediction. Uh, That are in the river. That are getting into the river. And this is a scary moment for... This is Jacob and Amy McCarty. Um, And they've been members of our community for a couple years now. uh, Serving on Sundays. uh, But... (laughs) getting into this river. It's like a wild river ride you're going on. And so we're going to send them out today. This is their last Sunday with us. A sad moment for me because um, whenever any of you leave, I hate it. But an amazing moment when I think about this notion of joining the work of God's desire for justice and restoration for all people, not just for ourselves. And so I want to invite you just to share a little bit what you're doing, and then I'm going to pray over you, and then invite you guys to a response. Um, well, my wife and I are moving down to Kent in a week. Um, we've been looking for a house down there, and um, just, this is, I'll let her share a little bit, but it's been building up for about a year now. We've been volunteering with World Relief and um, a refugee family down there, and I've had some other connections um, through when I first moved here before I met her uh, with some Iraqi guys that I became good friends with, and as we were volunteering and uh, just thinking about you know, where our lives are going we were down there about once a week or more, and we're, you know, one day last year, I was like, we should just think about moving down here. And I was like, oh, yeah, that would make, that would make some sense about where the Lord was leading our hearts. And um, so that's what's going on with us. And yeah, that's good. Okay. I'm going to let her share a little bit. Um, I have to admit, my first, after, after I mentioned that to him, like, well, why don't we just move? My next moment was a little less faithful. It was, ugh, Kent, right? It was like the hedonistic, prideful side of me that was like, oh, yeah, like Seattle is an awesome place. I love the city parks and the foodie kind of side of things. And there's a little bit of like, oh, maybe I'm not quite ready for that. (laughs) But thank thank goodness for the Holy Spirit, right? I guess, well, we both for a long time before we got married have been um, really excited about international ministry. We still have this like faraway dream of moving overseas at some point. Um, And so the Holy Spirit was like, okay, well, if you're willing to follow me to the ends of the earth, then you should be willing to follow me to Kent. Um, (laughs) Right? Not very far away. If you're from Kent, it's good. It's all good. So, yeah. Sorry, I'm from, like, Longview, so it's cool. Um, and now I get, I get really excited about it because we, we want to minister to the ends of the earth, but God has brought the ends of the earth to Kent. So it's one of the most diverse cities in Washington State, which both of our hometowns are not the most diverse cities of Washington State. So we're really excited. Um, I mean, we don't have kids at this point, but, like, for the far future, we want to play this, like, long game of, um, like, our kids are going to grow up in high schools that, like, speak 
way more languages than were spoken than ours. Mm -hmm. English and Spanish. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's exciting. Yeah. So. Yeah, a couple questions. One, when did you start kind of feeling a call toward coming alongside refugees? You started a cultural uh, companionship, or you started doing that about a year ago, you said? Yeah, well... And when I'm, did you start recognizing that was something God... When did you place that on your heart? Was it two years ago, or...? Yeah, well, I moved here three years ago. Um, back, uh, I lived in Oregon for a while, then I moved up here, and I got connected with a cultural companion. At the same time, I met her. And so I had started doing it um, when I was single, and then when we started dating, and by you know association, she kind of got into it with me a little bit as well. And I also realized she was a great partner at it, and you know who would want to marry her? Um, <laughs> but so that was about three years ago, and then kind of throughout our first year of marriage, um, we actually just had our second anniversary last Tuesday, and um, so um, during our first year of marriage, it was something that. Um, kind of came up when we started praying about and how we could do this as, you know, a, a family now, me and her. And um, so really it was during that year we started thinking about and praying about more. And um, last September we got uh, paired with a, a family that just came from Iran and they just had a baby girl like literally like a month and a half after they got to the States. And so pretty much over the past year as we've been exploring it and just thinking about what that looks like as a couple and basically just you know, stepping in to see what happens, you know, and just seeing how the opportunities got brought up. And so about the past year. Yeah. Put a marker on that. I'm going to invite you guys toward response, but a three-year process, and then more intentionally the last year, just pause there. We're going to pray for these guys, and I'm going to invite you all to response, okay? Um, any prayer requests, and then I'll lead the prayer time. Um, yeah, I think the biggest couple prayer requests is obviously we have Kind of just replanting our lives in a new community. We we don't know too many people down there, um, let alone finding a good fellowship of believers and um, just really feeling planted and connected. Um, and just for grace in the process, um, too often, you know, I think we both, uh, Amy and I, just, you know, want stuff to happen pretty quick. You know, it's part of our culture and society these days, you know, like same-day prime shipping. I mean, um, but just knowing that, like Amy said, it's, you know, it's a long process. You know, when I moved here three years ago, I would have had no idea we'd be standing up here talking about what we're doing. And um, so just the grace in the process of, you know, we're moving our lives, and I'm actually starting a job the next day after we move, so a new job. So there's just a lot of change happening at once, and just trusting the Lord for that, and not, you know, in that instance, it could be hard not to think, like, what have we done? Did we just make the biggest mistake of our lives, you know? And just knowing that um, uh, God is faithful in that and knowing that um, he will provide. And um, there will obviously be challenges in that, but just seeing God's faithfulness, it's, you know, it's a sweet thing. And it's, um, yeah, I think of that. Cool. Can you pray from where you're at? For, uh, we're going to invite the worship team up here, and then I'm going to lead this time in prayer. And if uh, you just want to put a hand out, just as a, a way of just extending that prayer to Jacob and Amy. God, thank you for, uh, for Jacob and Amy McCarty, for the blessing that has been to know them. Uh, I say that personally. I, I know I say it on behalf of many of my brothers and sisters here. Uh, thank you for their hearts to serve the last couple of years. And, part of our church and our fellowship on Sundays, but also beyond that. Uh, 
Thanks for their willingness to listen to you, even as you invite them to go to the harder places, uh, which might is moving for sure, is moving to a place of less maybe comfort in many ways, moving toward people that may be hard to identify with. God, thank you that they've said yes to that. And thank you for this notion that in that movement, in joining you in that work, they're really entering into this river and joining this stream of water. Jesus, you said you are living water, and so I just believe Jacob and Amy are getting into that water that you desire to send toward so many people and just saying yes to you. So God, would that be confirmed in the days ahead? Uh, would they experience deep intimacy with you, with each other? Would you provide them friends, and, and specifically friends in surprising places, a fellowship of believers that could gather with them and celebrate what you're doing in their lives and in this world? So we send them, we thank you, and for all that you'll do, in advance we say thank you, Jesus. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, guys. Hey, love you. Love you. For all of you, real quick, as we uh, lead out, this is a, I, I, I wanted to make sure you knew that this invitation to justice is a long process of reflection, and um, three years for these guys. Maybe it's a lifetime, been a lifetime for you. Uh, Laberton, in this book I've been quoting, has this little exercise at the end of one of the chapters. And he says, if justice means to make things right, what is one area of injustice, or you might say justice, that especially bothers you? Uh, What's one area that you see God wanting to make a difference in the world, and yet it's definitely not reflecting God's desire for the world yet? And so he invites you as readers or listeners now to take a month and meditate on that. Whatever it is. It could be homelessness. It could be the refugee crisis. It could be racial reconciliation. It could be poverty. It could be whatever it is. Families that are broken. And write down in this month. This is a month I want to invite you to. I'm just writing down 10 things. 10 ways that you could expand your understanding of that area. I'm not talking about getting busy, friends. I'm talking about God inviting you into deeper intimacy with Himself. Expanding your understanding. It could be reading. It could be going down to World Relief and seeing people. It could be just hearing stories so that you can respond to God's invitation. Does that make sense? Just sit and meditate. God, what's one area that's on your heart you put on my heart so I can connect with you? And then begin asking him, what are some ways I can expand my understanding of that? Okay? Take a moment to pray. God, thank you for this time we've had to learn. And now we, we respond uh, to you in song. We, we know you've made us whole people. So open our hearts now to respond to you in these moments ahead. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.